Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Damon Linker of The Week, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is E.J. Dion, columnist for The Washington Post. And we have so much to discuss. Last night, President Biden gave his first speech to a joint session. They don't call it the State of the Union in the first year of a presidency, but it was indistinguishable in most respects from a State of the Union, of course, with the accommodations made for COVID. So I'm going to start with you, EJ. I'm assuming you liked what you heard. This was this was unapologetic all the way down the line, liberalism with a capital L. Well, first of all, first, it's great to be with everybody here. Uh, second, I tell you one of the things I liked about it that had nothing to do with ideology, which is I've always loved State of the Union messages because they are long speeches in which presidents of all points of view usually tell the American people in Congress what they actually want to do. And in most cases, you believe that they actually meant to try to do those things. The only exception to that was President Biden's predecessor, where you could never know if what he said in the State of the Union had anything to do with what he intended to do. Uh, my evidence is in two words, infrastructure week. Um, <laughs> and so it was really great to hear somebody lay out a whole program very clearly. This is what I want. This is what I hope to achieve. And so that was cool. And it was long. It, you know, it wasn't long in the sense of overly long that went over time, but the list was long. And that's good too. As some of my favorite states of the union, I like that old Bill Clinton one that seemed to go on for an eternity. Uh, where he talked about all the stuff he wanted to do. So that was good. Um, On the liberalism, I think there's something really interesting about about Biden's uh, progressivism or liberalism, and it is that. Um, It's that it's really rooted in rather old-fashioned values. I think he went out of his way, for example, to say, I don't represent that parody of the Democratic Party that says it's a bunch of educated elitists. When he was talking about his infrastructure plan, he talked about how uh, the jobs created would be for people without uh, lots of college education. Uh, He mentioned the word jobs or job or jobs more than 40 times. Uh, That's pretty old fashioned. You could uh, almost see Hubert Humphrey smiling uh, from somewhere. Um, And what he laid out, there's nothing exotic about it. We have been talking about family leave for a long time. Biden cares about family values. Family values mean helping families take care of each other. Um, We have talked a long time about making college free. A lot of states, including red states, have made community college free or very, very, very cheap. Um, We've talked about expanding pre-K for a long time. So these are progressive commitments but they're not exotic. Uh, And I think if you polled each of them individually, a very substantial majority of Americans would say that's a good thing. Last thing I will point out, um, Biden is being very careful as a Democrat to tell everybody in the middle class, I am not going to raise your taxes. 
And it's really been fascinating to hear Republicans say, well, gee, he's only taxing the rich. The implication being uh, that uh, he should also tax the middle class or other people. I suspect Joe Biden would really love to have that argument with the Republicans uh, going forward. Uh, So, yes, it was bold. It was populist uh, and it was hopeful. And I love what he said about democracy at the end. Okay. Um, Bill, picking up on one of uh, EJ's points, um, it was shrewd, wasn't it, to uh, point out, uh, to, to, to emphasize the, on Biden's part. Uh, here's what he said. 90% of these jobs don't require a college degree. 75% don't require an associate's degree. He called it a blue collar blueprint to build America. He's trying to steal the Republicans' populist lunch, right? Yes, he is. And uh, to, result to, the, to resort to the oldest of journalistic cliches, time will tell whether he's right. Uh, there, are, uh, there are two problems, it seems to me, with what John Harris in Politico today labeled his ideologically audacious attempt to split up the Republican coalition and try to re-cement a substantial portion of blue-collar America to the Democratic Party. Uh, Problem number one, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago when he unveiled the jobs plan in Pittsburgh, uh, a lot of union people, including union leaders, are not confident that the green agenda is going to be compatible with either job security or good wages in the long run. And they see that as a, as a risky formula relative to the fossil fuel economy and the jobs that it produces. Uh, secondly, uh, it is, I think, an unsettled question whether an appeal to the pocketbook of blue collar workers really goes to the heart of what has moved them from the Democratic column to the Republican column over the past half century. Uh, It was not economic issues that moved them uh, in 1968 and 1972. It was cultural issues and, and the Vietnam War and patriotism Uh, nor, I think, was it economic issues that moved them uh, to so so strongly support Donald Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, where Biden made very modest progress with them. Uh, So so I think there is a lot of merit to the specific programs being advocated, whether they will have the intended political result for the Democratic Party and the administration is, I think, a is a more difficult question at this point. Um, and Damon, in addition, the um, the kinds of uh, majorities that FDR enjoyed or that LBJ enjoyed, two presidents with whom Biden is being compared, um, you know, are, are just dramatic. Uh, there were um, there was a twenty three seat Democratic advantage in the Senate uh, during Roosevelt's first term. Uh, there were. Um, uh, so, and, and the 36 seat uh, advantage during Johnson's. Um, so, uh, so there, there's no comparison. Right now, it's a razor thin margin. It's, uh, it's tied, except for the vice president's vote. 
Um, so it's questionable whether uh, these big plans will even get through. Even uh, Jim, uh, uh, Senator Manchin isn't even in favor of all of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you, you couldn't have queued me up uh, more perfectly on that, uh, Mona. And to, for our listeners, uh, we don't really, you know, game out these segues beforehand. So this is just fortuitous. Um, yes, uh, I was actually I have here on my browser. I have these margins up here, but you you summarize them well enough. I I mean, the two people who, who Biden is is being compared to, I think, rightly on one dimension, uh, is LBJ and the Great Society, and before him, of course, FDR and the New Deal. And that we, I mean, an argument that I've made in the in over the past month is that Biden does appear to be putting a, a kind of nail in the coffin of the Reagan era. And by saying that, I am conceding that I believe that. Basically, since Reagan won in 1980, uh, the parameters of the kind of bounds of acceptable debate, discussion, policy possibility has been set by kind of the Reagan revolution, where uh, once marginal tax rates went up to 70%, now we kind of fight over between like 33% and 39% and a whole host of other things about about exactly how high taxes can go, what government should be assumed uh, is in its purview. And so Democrats always sort of feel like they're playing within constrained boundaries uh, set by Reagan. And even when Trump tried to kind of subvert the Reagan consensus in all kinds of ways, that was about rejiggering the Republican side of what they care about. It didn't really necessarily imply anything about what Democrats could get away with once they were in power again. So Biden seems to be trying to finally break out of that constraint in a way that Bill Clinton and even Barack Obama never really succeeded in doing. And the question of whether he can do it, can he be the next FDR or LBJ? You know, I mean, I have no principled objection to this. I like a lot of these suggestions. I worry more than most Democrats these days about where the heck the money is coming from to pay for it. That's a separate conversation, I think, that we've talked about on here before. But the thing that Mona mentioned is decisively a, a really decisive question mark. When FDR came in, he had massive majorities in the House and the Senate, and he expanded on them further in 1936. When LBJ won his massive landslide in 1964, uh, we were we were dealing with a, a Senate uh, where where he had uh, 60, 68 to 66 votes between the beginning and the end of his term or the beginning of the end of the, the Congress that began in uh, 65, uh, the, the 89th Congress. And then in the House, he had, again, about a two-thirds majority. Uh, Biden has nothing remotely like that. So the question is, first of all, can he get any of this passed or even a large chunk of it? And then secondly, what is the political consequence if he can ram it through? What is there any downside politically to a kind of backlash to this, given that he's not coming in on the front end with a huge, overwhelming degree of support in favor of this kind of an agenda? And I don't have the answer to that. And as uh, Bill said, we shall see. Uh, Linda, the um, you know, there are some of these proposals that that I would support um, uh, that, that that seem very 
it's very necessary. Uh, I, I'm for removing the lead, for example, from uh, pipes because it damages children's brains. And uh, and I um, I think that we do need to increase R and D and you know basic inve- investment in basic science, um, which uh, which is is something that only the government. Um, really can do. Um, the private sector is, doesn't have the incentive as much to, to do that kinds of that kind of work. So so that's great. But a lot of these other things, I mean, he talked about quality affordable childcare. And look, everybody wants quality affordable childcare, but it's not that simple. First of all, this would subsidize um you know, out of home care at the expense of families who choose um, to have one parent stay at home, um, or to or to balance the childcare responsibilities with different family members. Um, I think it's far better to give money to parents, which of course he's also doing. But rather than um, to sort of force that choice, in fact, there are studies that show that that most um, families that with uh, low incomes prefer uh, that one parent. Be at home with the children rather than uh, than being subsidized, uh, rather than having their childcare subsidized. So, so there's that, um, and uh, and then there's a there's you know there is the problem of paying for all of this. Uh, the committee for a responsible federal budget said that even if we did pass all of these taxes, it does not cover all of the spending that that Biden is proposing, which is just kind of I mean as. You run out of superlatives to describe the spending. I mean, you know, six trillion dollars. So uh, when you add it all up, you know, for the first hundred days is uh, is just astounding. Uh, l- let me step back a minute and say first of all that I thought this was a an absolutely brilliant speech. Um, it was one of the best State of the Union or whatever you want to call it speeches that I've heard. Um, hmm. And uh, as a speech. Um, I thought that it was well delivered, that it had just enough rhetorical flourishes to make it eloquent in, in certain places, and it was breathtaking in its sweep. Having said that, Mona, um, you know, I am one of those people uh, who, though still considering myself a conservative, decided I um, had to vote for Joe Biden because I thought Donald Trump was such a threat uh, to democracy. And so I voted for him, uh, thinking that he would be uh, a more moderate Democrat um, and that he would work across the aisles and that he would work in a part bipartisan fashion. What he outlined yesterday to me um, was a transformation of the United States into a European style welfare state, uh, where there would be basically uh, cradle to grave um, coverage by the government of uh, certain, uh, you know, albeit important, but uh, at least in the United States, not government functions um, in the past. Um, and while I agree with you that there are some things that he described, which only government can do and that government has a moral responsibility to do, like removing lead uh, from the pipes, um, uh, even providing infrastructure in the form of broadband, I think is something that uh, government has a role to play. But this went far, far beyond that. And it really did, I, I think it was um, 
Brett Stevens we had uh, a, f- a couple of weeks ago in, in which um, I said this was not quite socialism. He said, no, it's not socialism. It's worse. It's French. It's France. <laughs> it's France. And, 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 and that is, you know, that's what I heard yesterday. Now, uh, you know, I gave him, I give him an A plus in terms of the speech, in terms of the vision, et cetera. But when you get down into uh, explaining what this would do, and you're absolutely right, um, being able to pay for this, I mean, I, the idea that there is going to be enough revenue that can be collected. You know, it's one thing to write a, a law and say you have to pay X percent of your taxes if you make over four hundred thousand uh, dollars, or you're a corporation. It's quite another thing to actually end up collecting that. Um, and as I've said before on this program, uh, one of the reasons you know rich people are rich is that they are very smart in hiring people to get them out of paying taxes. And so I, I've yet to see uh, somebody who can write a tax bill. Uh, perfectly enough that it will not end up resulting in unintended consequences. I think I've mentioned before that um, corporate um, corporations back in the day, um, there were, were laws passed that said that corporations couldn't deduct the um, pay for CEOs above a million dollars. That would no longer be a write-off as, as an expense to the corporation. And so, you know, corporations came up with various different ways of paying that did not involve cash payments to CEOs. Uh, and that's because, you know, they are, have very clever people figuring all of that out. But I think Bill said something also that's very important. And that is, I think this was an attempt to be the blue collar president to reach out to the blue collar. But there were a couple of things in the speech that um, bothered me. Uh, one is the, the reference to systemic racism, uh, which is one of my, uh, you know, things that I really push against. Uh, not because I don't believe there's racism. I think we have racists in our society. I think there are individuals. Uh, many of Let's them- hold that to the final All segment, right, so if we'll you don't mind, because okay. we're going to get into that. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk more about that later. But the point is that and the, you know, if you're a transgender youth, I've got your back. Those are the kinds of issues which I think they are underestimating how much this turns off middle class, uh, working class uh, voters. And those cultural issues uh, could be his undoing if he doesn't handle it right. Could okay. I come back in, Mona? Um, I, well, I, uh, EJ, let me go to Damon first because his hand was up, and then I will come to you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Mine was just a 10-second point. I just saw uh, while we were recording that the, the TV ratings for the State of the Union have been released. And just to put all of this in a bit of context, Trump's uh, first uh, speech to Joint Session of Congress in 2017 was viewed by 48 million people. The following year for the State of the Union in 2018 was 46 million the one after that was 46.8 million. The last one he did a year ago was 37 million. Biden was watched by 11.6 million. Oh. Um, so just <laughs> to give look, you a sense of, yeah, I mean, that, whether that's good or bad, I don't you know. know. He's boring Joe Biden. But, that's uh, right. The, I didn't think it was boring. <laughs> anything, anything regarding Trump, though, always has a rubbernecking aspect, right? Oh, People yeah. just want to see if there's going to be a crash. So, <laughs> exactly. Okay. 
Hey folks, editors note, um, when we were recording yesterday, we ha only had preliminary audience data on the uh, Biden speech. And it's since come to light that actually his audience was significantly higher, 26.9 million, according to a couple of different sources. So we uh, are, want to just correct the record. Okay, back to the show. So, so, so let's, <laughs> let's now go to EJ. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think your last point is right, Mona, but that's still lower than I would have thought. I would expect it to be lower, but not. that's quite surprising. Uh, but let me, I want to above all go back to Bill, but let me just say to Linda, I don't think this is hardcore cradle to grave socialism. And if it is French, if you look at my last name, that's just fine with me, Ms. Ami. But, um, <laughs> uh, but what I think it is, is a pretty moderate brand of social democracy. I will say that. And I think that uh, Joe Biden is a moderate social democrat at heart. But again, I'd emphasize that what he's talking about are things that most voters actually like. And to Mona's point, I am sure there are families in which there are people who wish one caregiver could stay at home, but there are a lot of families where they just can't afford it. And therefore having good, affordable childcare is way better than the alternative. But I or really- you can give them money. Well, I'm sorry? You can just give them the money, the parents. Um, the Up to a point, uh, you, you really, <laughs> to, to replace the income they would lose- uh, to make it affordable for them to stay at home would take quite a lot of money. But we can talk about that and what which would be more efficient or better. But I want to go back to Bill because I thought Bill would be a little more bullish because it really felt to me that Joe Biden had read his excellent piece in American Purpose magazine. Uh, <laughs> I trust you have spoken about it on this program. Uh, the headline is The Bitter Heartland and the subhead was A Toxic Class Resentment has been festering for decades among rural and small town Americans. And so much of the music of the Biden speech and much of the substance, I thought, came straight out of Bill's analysis. And the idea of driving a wedge into the opposition, Joe Biden is not going to win over uh, most working class white voters. They have been voting Republican for quite a while, particularly white Southerners where the voting is uh, racially polarized. But let me just very briefly tell the story of Wisconsin. Democrats don't have to win back the whole white working class. They just have to chip away at the Republican margins. Um, exit polls. Um, Barack Obama got 45% of the white non-college Wisconsin vote uh, in 2016, won the state handily. Uh, Hillary Clinton got only 34%. She lost. Joe Biden got the vote back up to 41%. Not Obama's levels, better than Clinton's levels. And we can quibble about whether the exit polls got it exactly right, but I think it gives us a sense of some of the switching. Um, and with that 41%, Biden carried Wisconsin by a very small margin. If he can bump the Democratic numbers in states like Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, maybe someday in Ohio, but just those three back up to where Obama had it in 2016, the political map looks very different. And so I think what Biden is trying to do is reduce the level of hostility among white working class people in the first instance, but then say, look, the Republicans talk about you, I deliver for you. 
And I think one of the cleverest lines where he took action on climate change uh, and turned it into economic nationalism uh, was when he talked about uh, uh, preferring to build um, you know, what uh, you know, some of the windmills take to build them in Pittsburgh rather than Beijing. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, Donald Trump must have been saying, damn, why didn't I say that? I mean, it's a, uh, it, it really is combining these elements. Bill is right. There are going to be some issues about pay in these new industries uh, that's going to have to be worked out. Um, but I think Bill, uh, you know, Biden really paid attention to what Bill said. And if he can simply uh, cut the Republican margins uh, in this group, uh, I think the Democrats are in much better shape long term. Uh, the, the topic of France has come up a few times. So I think it's worth mentioning uh, in light of uh, Linda's point, sort of to echo Linda's point about it's one thing to say you're going to tax the rich. It's quite another to actually collect. Um, so let's recall that when the socialist Francois Hollande was uh, president of France, he decided to pass a millionaire's tax. And this was going to fund some really wonderful things for uh, the French uh People. Well, it, two years after it was passed, um, it had to be repealed because, it, first of all, a lot of very wealthy people simply moved out of the country, um, and uh, and others found ways to shelter their income. So the tax was not uh, was not collected in anything like the numbers it it was hoped. And uh, I'll just say that Emmanuel Macron, who was I think finance minister at the times described this tax as w that it would make France Cuba without the sun. Solange's um, <laughs> uh, uh, tax was 75%. Yes, it was. It was very high. what Biden is doing. No, that is well. true. That is true. But I'm, you're, you, that's fair. But it is hard to collect taxes on the rich. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we do actually a pretty good job in this country of taxing the rich already. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not rich. I'm not, I'm, I'm not carrying their water, but I will just say that, um, when the president says, you know, they need to pay their fair share, just bear in mind that as it is the top 1% of taxpayers pay almost 40% of income taxes in this country and the top 5% uh, pay a total of 59.2% of all income taxes. So, it, you know, our system is already steeply, steeply progressive. Now, maybe it should be more so, but let's not pretend that they aren't already paying a disproportionate uh, uh, share of, of the taxes. Again, maybe that's good, but it's, it is what it is. Um, okay, Bill, you wanted to make one last point. I'm not sure we're going to have too much time for foreign policy, so we're going to have to cut that short. But go ahead, Bill. Okay, just very quickly. First of all, you're now getting a flavor of why I missed the eighth floor of 1775 Massachusetts Avenue so much. Because <laughs> <laughs> we used yes. to be able to do this much more frequently and easily. Second, yeah. the whole question of tax collection is... Uh, which I've been writing a lot about lately, is a lot more complicated than you're making out. We have done a poor and poorer job over the past decade of collecting the taxes that are legally owed, especially from rich people and corporations. And I can prove that. No, uh, I believe it. I believe and, it. And, and we should and do so, better. But you know, and, it, and, doesn't, it doesn't fill the gap that Biden is creating with his well, $6 trillion. A big, dollar. There, is a, uh, there is a big debate. And I 
I refer you to some excellent articles written by the former IRS Commissioner Charles Rosati over the past year as to A, what the extent of the tax gap really is, and B, what a modest investment, which Joe Biden, to his credit, is proposing, could do uh, to improve tax collection among uh, wealthy individuals and large okay. corporations. That's right. a big topic okay. for another no, time. No, it is. It is. And, and, it's, and it's a good point. So thank you for that. Look, uh, let, we, were, um, we ran long on the first segment, which is understandable. There's a lot to discuss and we really barely scratch the surface. But, um, but let's turn uh, to was evaluating um, Biden's foreign policy in the first hundred days. Um, and uh, and I, we're not going to have time to get into all of it, but I would ask each of you to comment on what you think is the most important aspect, except for you, Linda, who I'm going to start with, because um, I want you to talk, if you wouldn't mind, about um, about immigration. I think this has been a real misstep um, for Biden. And um, and he reversed himself on admitting refugees to this country. And there's a tremendous amount of confusion. We've talked about this before, but I think it'd be worth doing so again. There is a, there's a lot of confusion out there about the difference between refugees and asylum seekers. Can you sort of clarify the difference? Okay. Refugees are people who have gone through a system that is run primarily by the uh, UN Human Rights uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. To be a refugee to the United States, you um, have gone through a process of being vetted overseas. You are living in a a third country, uh, often in a refugee camp. Uh, It takes usually a couple of years to go through that vetting process. There are tens of thousands of people who've gone through that process and are awaiting their turn to come to the United States. And coming to the U.S. comes with a guarantee of financial support from the U.S. government for a period of time. Financial, uh, direct financial assistance, help in learning English, help in getting a job, help in housing. Um, And it is a program that dates back many years I think it was really first uh, became a, a major program with Vietnamese refugees uh, who had to flee after the communists took over Vietnam. Asylum seekers are usually in the past political uh, people who are fleeing, fleeing political persecution. Um, we often think of people like Cubans who used to have a right if they put their uh, foot on dry land in the United States, they had an automatic right to be admitted to the U.S., but they were fe- fleeing some sort of persecution, and it usually was uh, state persecution. What has happened, though, is the asylum laws written for that purpose um, are now being used by people who say they are f- fleeing persecution, but not necessarily by the state. It may be by drug cartels, it may be by gangs, it may be uh, by corrupt uh, political forces. Um, And the way the law is currently written, in order to claim asylum, you do have to step foot on U.S. soil. And uh, that was stopped last year uh, during the pandemic by Trump, who uh, used extraordinary powers under the uh, because of the pandemic to keep people uh, from being able to claim asylum uh, simply by coming to the U.S. border and and crossing over and turning themselves in. Uh, but the one group that is now continuing uh, to be allowed in are unaccompanied children 
uh, and they are coming as asylum seekers, claiming that they are uh, fleeing persecution again by drug cartels and others where they feel that their lives are in danger. So that's the that's the main difference. And I think you're right, Mona. I'll just briefly say he did devote a little time to talking about immigration. But unfortunately, the public opinion polls now say two to one that they disapprove of the way the president has handled immigration. And I think they were caught uh, flat-footed by the surge uh, in unaccompanied minors. Um, I know that I, you know, talked about this very, very early on uh, after he was elected, that you were going to see a surge in unaccompanied uh, children because they were the one group that... um, uh, it would be very hard to turn away, even though uh, Trump didn't find it that hard to do. Uh, Biden would. And I think they were not prepared with the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is the office in the government that has to deal with these unaccompanied minors. So I think it's made immigration reform much more difficult to accomplish. I do think that there are some, um, there is some consensus about dreamers. There may be some support for people who have temporary protected status, and there may be some path forward on figuring out what to do about the 11.5 million people who are in the country illegally, uh, many of whom came here legally with uh, proper visas, but overstayed their visas. So that's in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. It, it, does, it does seem that, um, you know, studies have shown that, that voters... Um, hate the perception that the border is out of control. That is what makes them incredibly nervous. They are much more willing to accept more legal immigrants if they have a feeling that you're not being swamped by illegal immigrants or by, you know, hordes of people trying to, to enter. So that's, um, that's something that I think they've, they've, it has been a misstep for them. Damon, um, the the president has tried to be the anti-Trump in many respects, you know, rejoining the Paris Accord. He's trying to get the Iran deal back up and running. He's saying America is back as a member in good standing of the democratic world and the human rights respecting world. He did one thing, though, that I'm curious to know your views on. He called Putin a killer. Now, that may have been an effort to say, you know, that Trump is gone now. We're, we're no longer We're no longer kissing Putin's ring. Um, but, um, but was that a mistake? Do you suppose? I don't think it's uh, that much of a mistake is just sort of silly. Like I, I, I realize that, uh, a lot of Democrats, uh, really loathe Putin, uh, to an extent that we probably haven't seen, uh, <laughs> uh, Russia coming in for hate from the center left in many decades. It's, it's really quite, uh, astonishing because of his involvement in, in trying to give Trump a boost in 2016. And then the whole Russia investigation, Putin has been transformed into some kind of nightmare ghoul by, uh, Rachel Maddow and others. And, and I think, Biden is probably playing into that. Maybe he also believes it uh, to an extent. I don't know. But when it comes to actual policymaking, uh, I think his moves have been much more sober than that. I mean, I think standing up to uh, Putin's uh, troop increases on the border of Ukraine is prudent and wise and has been handled well. It even seems as if Putin might be showing signs of backing down, which is a very good thing. Uh, I think, and then be 
beyond that, I, I think uh, his moves against China have been fruitful so far to the extent that much has happened. Um, and, and, you know, one of my many cases in favor of, uh, of Biden's uh, decision to finally draw down in Afghanistan, uh, the, the kind of the, one of the upsides to that is to make very clear that we are resolutely focusing on the threats that are coming uh, several clicks east of Afghanistan with China and its ambitions in East Asia. So uh, in general, my my grade for, again, it's only been 100 days, but in these in these opening moves, I think the administration seems to be doing a, a very good job overall. Uh, the rhetoric about Putin being a killer, I think I got to roll my eyes at that and hope that it it sort of passes because it, it, it's kind of silly to me. AJ, where were you on the Iran deal? And do you think it's do you think it's wise to try to rush back into it, considering that Iran has shown uh, no evidence of uh, of abiding by its terms? Lately? Could I just say before I answer that that I broadly agree with what Damon said. I think democracy is at the center of Biden's foreign policy. Alliances with democratic nations are at the center. I agree that the competition with China is, in the view of the administration, the single most important problem his foreign policy will confront. I think all that's good. The only thing I disagree with him on is I actually do think Putin is something of a nightmare ghoul, but we can argue about that <laughs> another day. I might even have others on this call who agree with that. Hmm. Uh, I was very sympathetic to the Iran deal, uh, and I thought it was a way to put Iran into a bit of a box for a long period, you know, a, a fairly long period, and that was good. Uh, I thought it might at least give some chance, and I know I wouldn't, I'm not betting a lot of money on this, but I think we know that there is a lot of support in Iranian civil society for a less repressive regime when they can express themselves in elections, and there are elections of a kind in Iran, we should acknowledge, but they are obviously highly controlled elections. But th those electorates have signaled that they would like a less repressive regime and probably better relations with the United States. So I welcome uh, the effort to restart the deal, but it's really complicated uh, since we the deal has not been in place uh, for a while. Uh, Iran has used the fact that we got out of the deal uh, to make certain progress uh, in producing a nuclear weapon. So I won't pretend to say it'll be easy, uh, but I think the broad idea behind the Iran deal was correct. And therefore, I am, I am inclined to think, I'm, I'm more than inclined to think, I do think that the effort to see if it can be restarted is a good idea. Um. Yes, they, they have elections of a kind in Iran. That unfortunately, those elections don't determine who's in charge of the place. Right, but um, they signal so, where the country is to some degree. I agree well, with you. Well, would like to be, but maybe. Yeah, would like to be, but isn't. If, if the people were in charge, it would be it would be uh, it would be a non-threat, arguably, because uh, because they actually, according to what we have heard the the Iranian people are actually far less anti-American uh, than their than their government. But anyway, uh, Bill, you wanted you wanted in. I won't even have to pose a question to you. You already know what you're going to say. I do. Uh, okay. You know, let me just let me just focus on China quickly. 
So, because I know you have an agenda to manage. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think that our, our dealing with China uh, is the single issue that will do most to defend, to define our foreign policy, and not only that, the state of the world for decades to come. Uh, and so let's look, let's look at Biden's policies so far. Think of it as four D's, uh, domestic investment, a counter the Chinese technological threat. He's on that case. Uh, diplomacy, moving forward, uh, a focus on democracy. Again, as EJ said, uh, front and center. But there's a fourth D, and it's hard power, a.k.a. defense. And it's not clear to me that the, uh, that the Biden administration has even begun to think about how the defense budget would have to be reconfigured in order to put the competition with China dead center. Do we have the Navy that we need? Do we have the technology that, that we need? Do we have the strategy that we need? My answers to those three questions would be no, no, and no right now. And I hope very much that, that, that the Biden administration will focus more uh, on the fourth D as it thinks about next year. Bill, you're proving once again that there's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Um, okay, uh, let us turn now to a topic that is very much uh, on the minds of people uh, left of center. Uh, a study was uh, published by two scholars at Yale University uh, describing um, how Democrats ought to frame their policy proposals, uh, whether they should frame them as um, racial uh, recompense or or in a racial racialized term, or class based appeals, or combination, or neutrally, um, and uh, and they concluded uh, that framing things as as racial recompense um, doesn't really gain you much with Democrats or with African Americans, but does create a backlash uh, among Republicans and independents. Um, so uh, this, I'm going to start with you this time, Bill. Um, uh, have you followed this, uh, th this back and forth? Because there are very strong feelings on the left about this. Uh, I have not followed this particular back and forth. Let me just say for the record, I'm not surprised. Uh, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when you're, you know, you know, when when you're talking, you know, when you're talking about rec recompense for past wrongs, there are two different dimensions, at least to pay attention to one of which is the moral dimension uh, and the other of which is the political dimension. And. It may very well be the case that there are policies, many policies, uh, that are morally justified but politically treacherous. This may be one of them. Linda, your hand is up. Well, as you might imagine, um, I was not surprised at all uh, by the study. And, of course, it was written about in a uh, an op-ed by um, our, our friend at the New York Times, Thomas Edsel, uh, but the study itself, uh, when you when you look at it, um, it it was done first of all. Uh, one of the people who was involved in it, um, I believe, was uh, uh, last name was uh, 
Lopez, so presumably uh, Hispanic. I don't know if the other person uh, involved oh. uh, was I, the one. Sorry, the one I was referring to was Micah English and Josh Kala of Yale. Oh, okay. Sorry, so I'm there's sorry. more than one yeah. study okay. out there, yeah. but that was the one I was referring to. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, I was I was misreading that. You're absolutely right. Um, look, I th- we've known this forever. Um, Americans do not like uh, to be forced to think in racial terms. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I mean, obviously, some people do think in those terms. Uh, Those who are in the identity politics movement certainly think in those terms. Uh, So do racists. Racist whites uh, specifically think uh, in racial terms. But the idea of America and the idea that we... uh, should be one nation, one people, and that regardless of what we look like, where our ancestors came from, uh, we're still Americans, has been an ideal that I think has has uh, been very important to the, uh, to the American experiment. And to the degree to which um, today's social justice movement tries to take every narrative and fit it into a racial paradigm, I think is uh, poisonous. Uh, I think it actually uh, leads to worse racial relations, not better racial relations. And um, the fact that white liberals, and particularly you know those who go to elite uh, colleges and universities, seem to be happy to think of themselves as oppressors. Um, you know, well, if you know your parents are very rich, and um, you know maybe you think that they uh, have gained their wealth by ill-gotten goods and by uh, oppressing other people. But if you're a working class person and you're sort of just barely struggling to get by, the notion that you are somehow the beneficiary of white privilege strikes you as crazy uh, and is wrong and as deeply offensive. So um, I, I found the the study um, actually a um, uh, welcome, and um, it, it wasn't surprising. And I, you know, I I think it says exactly uh, the path that we should take, and and that when you have to infuse race into every single subject and and talk about things like systemic racism, as I said earlier, uh, you're actually uh, harming uh, your goals, not helping them. Damon, um, when I talk about these issues with African-American friends, I, I, I notice that they're, one of the things that constantly comes up, or, or not constantly, but often enough, is this sort of like gnawing resentment on their part that, that they don't feel that white Americans give enough acknowledgement to the fact that this country has been racist ab initio and that there are all kinds of barriers uh, to, to blacks and that, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of, um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out a way, like, how do you convey in, in politics that, yes, that's all true, and yet it's not a good idea to constantly refer to it because it it doesn't improve things and it gets people's backs up. I don't know. What, what's your reaction? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what you're doing. If you're just speaking in general terms about the country and its history, then I think it is incumbent to 
make a reference to our somewhat murky past, lots of glory, lots of things to be proud of, but also things to be ashamed of, mistakes that were made from the very founding of the country and before the founding of the country, because, of course, slavery was here before the official founding as well. And so that's sort of what you do now. And I think most decent Americans understand that that is part of our story and needs to be acknowledged. But if you're talking about policy and specific things the government ought to do, you should only talk about race if race is the issue you're addressing. So if you're talking about racial disparity in how police officers interact with with potential uh, perpetrators of crimes, then yes, you talk about race and you look at studies and you compare racial disparities between blacks and whites and Hispanics and men and women and you look and you do public policy analysis and you and you bring in race because it's pertinent there. But if instead you're talking, say, about raising the minimum wage, when there are poor white people, poor Hispanics and poor black people and other groups, poor Latinos, poor Asians in the country, uh, then it probably doesn't make sense. Then you're talking about class, which cuts across those those racial disparities. And the problem is that a large faction of the leadership wing of the Democratic Party are, as you said earlier, are uh, highly educated white liberals who have bought into a certain framing on these issues that denies that there is any distinction here because ultimately everything comes down to a kind of race-based identity politics. And so to say that you shouldn't talk about the racial or lead with the racial angle if you're talking about raising the minimum wage is absurd because for people who look at at uh, at the country this way and at reality this way, what everything is about a kind of systematic problem that permeates everything. So even, I mean, you get things like Biden saying things, here's an issue on foreign policy that I sort of roll my eyes at, at but again, it's mostly so far rhetorical. If Biden starts talking about our foreign policy and saying, you know, we're going to address racial discrepancies and disparities in, in, in the way we treat other countries, I just sort of say, like, you've drunk some pretty poisonous Kool-Aid there, my friend. Like, what are you talking about? But there is this tendency among a certain kind of usually white liberal that that sees everything in in this use this uses this term of systemic racism. Well, systemic means the system. It means everything. It's 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 traditions, habits, norms, laws. It's the air we breathe. It permeates everything, like the atmosphere. And if that's true, then race touches everything, and we need to talk about race all the time. That's where I think we run into big problems that do I think hold down the potential appeal of the democratic message. And so I very much, uh, I, I was not surprised by and liked very much the findings uh, of that study because I would love Democrats to take it to heart, though I'm skeptical they will anytime soon. Um, EJ, somebody else who has been trying to sound this warning um, is James Carville, um, who knows a thing or two about winning elections and uh, and who has said that he's really worried about the woke influence of democratic leadership. And he <laughs> kind of sneers at it. He says there's too much of the 
English faculty at Amherst uh, mood uh, to be found among among Democrats. Uh, what's your reaction? Um, it's very Jamesian, and I guess <laughs> on all of these questions, I go back to the president he helped elect, Bill Clinton, and say it all depends on what the meaning of is is. Uh, I think so much of this depends on how you do it and what you're actually saying. For example, racial oppression does go back to 1619. Some of the founders were slaveholders, including Thomas Jefferson. We have to come to terms with how deep racism goes in our history. But these same founders wrote documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that advocates of racial justice from Lincoln to Martin Luther King and forward have appealed to to fight back against racial injustice. These things are all true at the same time, and we need a capacious enough conversation that we can acknowledge all of them. My views, secondly, on this have been influenced by uh, the writer Nancy Frazier, who talks about social justice. And I, social justice to me is a really old-fashioned term. I'm a Catholic. It's, it's sort of deep in Catholic social thought. You've got to care about redistribution and recognition, meaning there are inequalities of class, but there are also inequalities related to race and gender and other factors. And you've got to try to remedy both. Uh, where you can, uh, I think class inequalities overlap with racial inequalities. And there are a lot of ways in which progressives and Democrats can talk about class inequality in a way that really is also about lifting up black Americans and Latinos. And I think you saw that in Biden's speech last night. He led with the class inequalities, but then he got back to the evil of racial inequality and in particular uh, talked about George Floyd. I think you have to be able to talk about both. Uh, and anything where I'll always be inclined to agree with James is anything that sounds too much like it comes out of an English department faculty meeting probably won't work very well in American electoral politics. Uh, I think that goes a long way. But I think the desire to name racism uh, and to acknowledge it and to acknowledge that it has a deep role is very important because we really are trying to enter, a, you know, if you will, the third reconstruction. Um, you know, we had the first one and it got rolled back. We had the second one and Trump led a backlash against it. I think we're trying to do it in a fundamental way and do it right this time. And it's going to have to be based on a multiracial coalition if it's going to work. Um, so yeah, th that's, those are, those are all good points. Uh, I would, I would just stress uh, what, uh, what Damon said. I mean, you know, of course we all recognize our history of racism and the persistence of racism. Um, but it is also important to, to, um, to limit that, well, not limit it, but but to acknowledge that it isn't everything. You know, there are other divisions in society. There are other things going on, and there is this mindset among some 
in the faculty lounges and other places um, that reduces everything to race. And it's kind of a, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a narrow uh, view that doesn't, I think, capture reality. Um, so anyway. Um, By the way, I don't want anyone to think I'm bigoted against English departments. Since my <laughs> wife and one of my, our, and our son both majored in English and they profited from it. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, we, we have nothing against the English language or English departments uh, in theory. Maybe Amherst, though. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> theory is Let the problem, now- though. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Let us now turn to our final segment where we highlight or lowlight something from the past week. Uh, Bill Galston, start with you. Well, uh, consistent with what I said about in response to your foreign policy question, Mona, I'd like to highlight uh an article recently published in Foreign Affairs by a woman who should have been our Secretary of Defense, namely Michelle Flournoy, who spells out in considerable detail uh, the things that we need to be thinking hard about if we want to be in a position to deal with China uh, without a resort to war. Uh, We need much more effective deterrence than we have, she argues. And we need, we need to be aware of the fact that Chinese technological advantages, ha, advances rather, have largely mooted uh, the kinds of military strength that we historically have put into the Pacific. Pacific. So it's a short article, but where, where a really big again? topic in foreign affairs. The foreign most affairs. Very good. Okay. EJ. Uh, So I want to shout out Ezra Klein for a piece that he just uh, put up uh, that is in favor of passing things on a partisan basis when because you can't get much done uh, on a bipartisan basis. And that Ezra argues that we are better off to let each party do what it wants to do in power and let the voters decide. A world of partisan governance, I'm quoting him, is a world in which Republicans and Democrats both get to pass their best ideas into law and the public judges them on the results. That is far better than what we have now, where neither party can routinely pass its best ideas into law and the public is left frustrated uh, so uh, that so much political tumult changes so little. I think we need to take that to heart at this moment. Okay. Linda. Well, I'm going to go back to the last topic with my recommendation. Uh, It's very much of a different point of view than the uh, woke uh, uh, individuals. Uh, It's by Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal, who I should in full disclosure note is a member of the board of my Center for Equal Opportunity. He wrote a column called Race Relations in America Are Better Than Ever. Obsessed with theories of systematic racism and unconscious bias, the media ignores the good news. And he refers in this uh, piece to a study that was done by the Manhattan Institute, um, a report called The Social Construction of Racism in the U.S. by Eric Kaufman. Um, 
I commend it uh, to take a look at it for a different point of view from the the usual sort of uh, discussions we hear on race these days about systemic racism. Um, and I found it um, informative. Uh, I thought the study itself was uh, well done. Uh, while I don't always agree with everything that uh, the Manhattan Institute does in uh, these areas, uh, I thought this was uh, well worth taking a look at. And that study is available also at the Manhattan Institute site. Okay, thank you. Damon. Okay, so I, a few months ago on this podcast, uh, I did something a little unusual. I, I plugged uh, a review of a forthcoming biography of the novelist Philip Roth. Now, this was a, yes. a, 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 this was a mixed to critical review of this 900-page uh, mammoth uh, authorized biography coming by the author Blake Bailey. I was very excited about it. It was a very critical review, but it was very smart and creative, and I liked it a lot, so I shared it with, with our listeners. If you haven't been following, uh, this book uh, was published about three weeks ago, uh, but right around the time it was published, I think within a day or two of that, uh, the author began to be accused by several women of a whole range of things from grooming them several years ago when they were teenagers so that he could sleep with them when they were uh, 18 or older to two separate uh, rape accusations. This has now led uh, the book first uh, is his publisher, Norton, which I should note is the uh, publisher of my second book, The Religious Test. Uh, they first... Uh, ceased uh, the forthcoming second printing of the book. And then a few days later, a few days ago this week, announced that they were putting the book out of print, effectively disappearing it from the world. Now, I think about 10,000 copies are out and about. I have a copy uh, and others do too. So it's not like it really will disappear. But in effect, this book will no longer be promoted and it will no longer be printed again. So I found this quite amazing. And I, I've been irritated by it because Bailey sounds like a real creep, but I don't think the book should be erased from existence. Uh, I think this is a terrible latest sign of cancel culture when a book, which I think should be judged on its own merits, including reviewed very negatively for signs of, of, of these pathologies in Blake Bailey's uh, writing, uh, and perhaps also in his connections with Roth that led him to be dubbed the authorized biographer. But I will say that Catholic of the nation. I don't think I usually uh, plug things in the nation, which is several clicks to my left. Um, but Catholic in the nation has an excellent column that makes numerous moral judgments about the various complications of this issue and comes down exactly right on all of them. So her piece is titled Blake Bailey's Life as a Man, which is a great title. Uh, <laughs> uh, by Katha Pollitt, I highly recommend it if you want to get up to speed on all of this hullabaloo and, and again, be guided through it by someone who shows she has a, a very good uh, ability uh, at moral discernment. Excellent. 
All right. Uh, Damon, you've become sort of our literary editor here at the- uh, I've always wanted at, to be a literary editor, yeah. <laughs> so this is actually very- want Damon to run one of those English departments. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, don't think, I, don't think, I don't think Amherst is going to offer him a job, however. Okay, can, can we call this segment the back of the book? And I'm the there editor. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I would like to draw attention to a piece that appeared in Politico in the magazine part of Politico uh, by L. Gordon Krovitz, who's the former publisher of the Wall Street Journal and uh, now founder of something called NewsGuard. What's NewsGuard? Well, it is it is now being dubbed middleware. So the title of the piece for Politico was What I Learned on My Quest to Fix America's Social Media Problem, colon, middleware could be the solution to our tech woes, and it goes on. So what's middleware? It is the kind of thing that they are designing, namely a program that will rate the truthfulness or reliability of websites and sources that you may be coming across. And he talks in this piece about how Microsoft has been perfectly happy to incorporate uh, these kinds of things into its browser, but uh, but the big tech uh, guys from Silicon Valley, the Twitters and the Facebook people and so forth, have not so far been willing to do that. And, and uh, he talks about the problem of their algorithms, which are optimized to increase engagement and therefore eyeballs and attention, which leads to advertising dollars rather than to truth. And uh, it's kind of a... a, a, a analysis of how if we reform Section 230 to require that these kinds of middleware programs be uh, supplied or at least offered by the big tech companies, it would go a long way uh, in the march toward uh, giving people the tools to understand the reliability of, um, of what they're reading. So Interesting piece. Uh, hopefully, one of the signs of of uh, reform that we so desperately need in the realm of social media. And with that, I'd like to thank EJ for joining us. I'd like to thank all of you for listening and rate and review us. That would be delightful. You can reach me uh, at uh, well, let's see. You can find my email if you f- if you go to thebulwark.com and look me up there. Um, and uh, I, I read them all. I do not get a chance to respond to all of them, alas, but uh, I, I do read them. So we appreciate your feedback and uh, we will return next week as every week. 